Father, we just thank you for your church. We thank you that uh, you've given not just uh, Jesus, but you've given us the Spirit who indwells inside of us and lives through us and, and whose energy we work and strive and toil. And uh, we thank you that the church is the means that you're using to accomplish your purposes and your will on earth. And uh, Lord, what a great privilege we have just to be part of that. What a great privilege we have to uh, just say and be identified by the name of Jesus and to live in the power of his Spirit. Lord, as we look at uh, just different aspects of the church or ecclesiology, God, I pray that our minds would be uh, awakened, our hearts would be illumined, God, and Lord, this would be challenging for us, that we would really rethink the way we approach membership, Lord, that we would rethink the way we approach our elders and our deacons, Lord, that we would uh, rethink the way we worship you and exist in this body. Lord, at the end of the day, we want to give you all the glory, we want your name to be lifted up, and I pray, God, that your spirit would be working in us and through us. And we just acknowledge right at the front end, uh, Lord, that unless your spirit is working in our hearts, Lord, this is just information. So, God, we ask that you would take your word, your truth, and illumine our hearts and minds. And may we go to church and be ready to worship you. May we be focused on your word. May we be focused on your mission. Uh, and, Lord, ultimately, uh, the purpose which is to give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do a ecclesiology if you don't know what the word ecclesiology means, we're going to get to that and do a little background of that. And uh, first of all, I want to start off with the goal. And I think this is actually the goal of the church, that I have been serving with the Village Church now for four years. Uh, and we put everything in PBMs, it's just kind of what we do. So you'll notice that that is what we love. Uh, but our goal is to align ourselves as the Village Church of Bartlett with God's purpose, vision, and mission on earth. And this is very important because getting a grasp of what God is doing is extremely, extremely important. For example, there are some churches uh, who are so seeker-oriented that they forget that half the purpose of the, of the Church of God is discipleship. Uh, it's reaching out and reaching in. There's two sides of this focus. And really, you can get down to the core of most churches. You can see right where they go wrong, right at the beginning. You just ask them, what is the purpose of your church? And then we get to do line up with Scripture. What does God say the purpose of His church is? And really, that's one of the first things you can, you can really look at in churches. Uh, you look at the mission statement. You just figure out, what do you stand for? And then the next thing is, a lot of churches will put, you know, our purpose is to glorify God. Our vision is to see people completing Christ. And they'll have all these really great uh, PBMs. But their programs don't line up. Uh, the programs oftentimes have nothing to do with God's purpose, vision, and mission. They have nothing to do with what the Bible says a church should function as. And so I know as a village church, our goal is to align ourselves with God, to be, as God's heart beats, we're just right there with Him, beating with Him. Uh, and so, however this works out, each and every single person in this church plays, I think, an incredibly vital role in making this happen. And it starts with the top down, and so we're going we're gonna to really just go from the top down, from the elders to the deacons, to the membership, and then your responsibility will be mixed in and out there. But um, the, the, the body of Christ, I think, is hands down the only way that God's purposes on this earth are going to be accomplished. So when we think of ourselves as the body of Christ and we think of ourselves as the church, what an awesome, awesome privilege we have. It is, it is more important than Microsoft, as revolutionary as Microsoft has been. It's more important than the Internet. It's more important than big business. It's more important than money. It's more important than technology. Uh, none of those things ultimately will accomplish God's purpose and vision and mission on earth. Uh, the church does. And the church uses these things as tools. We use these things as means to see the kingdom of God expanded. We use these tools to make sure that God's purpose is accomplished. But ultimately, uh, it is not those things. It's the Spirit of God working through the church, which is the number one objective. So as we get to step back and be a part of this, uh, what a great privilege we have is you guys get to study ecclesiology, and you get to study different other ologies. Uh, how fun is that going to be that this is really the program of God on earth to bring about the kingdom of God over the entire world. Um, so, what's that? Is that an ology? Ecclesiology. That's a good one. Uh, Ecclesia. Have you guys talked about this word yet, or ecclesiology? Uh, ecclesiology, basically, what it comes to mean in everyday language. If you open up a theology book, it'll mean the study of the church, the way the church runs, what it's supposed to do, how it comes together, how they uh, function as a body or as a tree or whatever metaphors or as a flock. Uh, ecclesia is a Greek word, and a lot of times you'll hear preachers get up and they'll preach on this word because this in a very, very literal sense means called out ones. Uh, ek is a 
uh, is a word, it's a little preposition which means out of, and kleos is a word that means to call. And so basically, uh, a lot of sermons will revolve around the topic when they talk about ecclesiology as the church's called out ones. Uh, if you guys, there's going to be a lot of words that I kind of use, and especially on the front end, I want to make sure that we are all exactly on the same page. So if there's a word that I throw out there, just throw your hand up and we'll explain some of the stuff. But uh, really the root of the word uh, is found in the Septuagint. This is a very, very important thing. If you don't know what the Septuagint is, I would, I'll explain it really quickly, but remember this because uh, the Septuagint is the Bible that most of the quotations in the New Testament are taken from. This is a very important, important document. It's basically the Old Testament in Greek. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. Most of the quotations are from the Greek Old Testament. And so as we get to the Ecclesia, we get to the Septuagint. It's also called the LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70, because 70 scholars got together in like the first century B.C. and put together the Greek version of the Old Testament. So as, as Paul and as Timothy and as other guys are interacting with the first century Bible, we're reading most likely the Septuagint. Uh, so if you ever hear that word, put that in your mental categories, put it in the margin of your mind. It's a very important word. And in the Old Testament, guess what ecclesia meant? Anybody have any ideas? A whole bunch of things. I mean, most you, you could probably say a whole bunch of things, and your answers would probably be right. The ecclesia refers to Israel. It refers to uh, congregations of random people getting together for, for different purposes. It refers to the synagogues. It refers to a group of pagans getting together. And basically, even though literally it meant a group of called out ones, it came to be known as basically any assembly getting together. And so as Jesus in Matthew 16 says, some really powerful words that we're going to look into, he says, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. I will build my assembly, my group of people that are defined by who Jesus is, what his mission on earth is. And then we, as the church, come under that head. And so we are the ecclesia. We are the group whose leader is Jesus, who are identified by his purpose, vision, and mission. And whatever that purpose, vision, and mission is, we better get on board, because that's what God's doing. Because God is Jesus in the flesh. And if Jesus is doing it, and if Jesus is talking about it, we better get on board with that. So we're going to look at a couple things here. Uh, and I'm going to, I know that Mark probably put the purpose on there. And I hope that this complements what Mark taught on the last two weeks. It should, because they're basically from Scripture. But this is one of the, my favorite verses on the church. First Timothy 3.15, and somebody want to read this? I'm going to emphasize the talents. Bring it. But in case I am delayed, I write, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What does a pillar do? Hold it up. It holds it up. What does the support do? It holds it up. And the church is God's ordained means on the earth to hold up and support truth for all people. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, truth and the life. And who is true? No one but Jesus, absolutely. And what he says goes. And the church's first purpose is really uh, to make sure that everybody on this planet knows the truth. Whether they accept it or not, that is between them and the Lord. But the church is the pillar and support of truth. And the truth taught in Scripture, the truth taught by Jesus, the truth taught by the Torah and the Old Testament, and the prophets, and the Psalms, and the poetic literature, and the history books, whatever those things teach, whatever the Scripture teaches, our job is to uphold it in truth. And we don't just preach and teach from the New Testament, we preach and teach from the whole counsel of God, because it is all God's truth. And any church that you go into that does not teach out of the Old Testament, ignores the Old Testament, bypasses the Old Testament, run from. Because even when, when Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed. What scripture was he referring to? The Old Testament, absolutely. Uh, the Old Testament is foundational and pivotal for understanding the New Testament accurately and correctly. And it's two sides of the same coin. You just can't have one without the other. There are some extreme churches who uh, don't even teach out of the Gospels. Uh, because they believe that the only legitimate writings for the church are Paul's letters, and that's it, and maybe Revelation. Uh, now that's goofy, and it should sound goofy to you, but there are churches literally that are growing, there are seminaries that are teaching us, 
and some people that what's that? Seminaries too, huh? Oh, absolutely, and and that's the tough thing about seminaries. Just uh, you get into a lot of them, and they're kooky. I mean, they they are not a lot of them biblically grounded. And as Brianna and I were looking for seminaries to go to, and we were pursuing our degrees. Uh, it was we had to weed out about 90% of the seminaries that we were interested in because quite honestly there are liberal seminaries that have their agendas um, like for example uh, Princeton Seminary actually used to be an evangelical uh, Christ-centered God honoring is one of the most academic Christian seminaries in the world and they went liberal and then they started uh, some guys left that seminary and went off and started Westminster which is a small Presbyterian seminary in Pennsylvania but all of these major uh, institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton were all solid, evangelical, Christ-centered, Bible-teaching, ministry-developing schools, and that's how they started. And liberalism has crept its way into so many of the institutions, and it is a rare breed of seminary that stands firm on the Word of God. And even some of the evangelical seminaries are starting to fudge in some real, real basic basic things about Scripture. And so um, one of the things we loved about Trinity was that Trinity upheld the evangelical uh, basically gospel essentials and then some. Um, one of the things we love about Moody is that Moody is not compromised and held on to truth. Again, just a rare commodity. But the church is the, uh, is the pillar and support of truth. And I want you to, to think beyond elders and deacons. And I want you to think beyond the institution. Don, you are a part of the pillar and support of that truth. And where you go, you represent truth. Jim is the same thing. And we can look each one of you in the eyes and say, you are a pillar and support of the truth and the, for the purpose of the world and letting the world know what the heck God's doing. Because he is doing something and all people for all times will be accountable to what God is doing and whether or not they have aligned their lives with that purpose. So what a great privilege. We are not passive people sitting in our rears, at least we shouldn't be. We are active members of the body of Christ, of the pillar of support of truth that goes out into the world. Now, Brian knows, and this is a little sideways for you, I will talk on the purpose of the church for the next 45 minutes if I don't go on, and I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. So my goal is to get through this for Mark's sake and keep going. Uh, I call this the posture. This is also another way of saying the vision and mission. And who would read this for me? I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the key of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth you shall be, you shall have bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth you shall have loosed in heaven. Awesome. Uh, Jesus is in a city called Caesarea Philippi, one of the most pagan cities in the in Jerusalem or in Israel and in the Roman Empire. Uh, there's actually a place in Caesarea Philippi called the Gates of Hades. And the Gates of Hades was kind of like a cave, and they would have um, basically satanic or some kind of, some kind of rituals there. Uh, it's a very shady place. And the Gates of Hades is a place that's basically uh, some considered the entrance to the dead. Uh, very interesting place. But Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. He is with his disciples. Specifically, he's calling out Peter because Peter has a very unique and prominent position. Uh, Paul tells us later on that uh, Peter, James, and John were the pillars of the church. As we look at the book of Acts, as, as Luke draws out this account of the early church and how it functioned, uh, the first ten chapters are about Peter and his ministry, and the last by two-thirds of the book about Paul and his ministry. And Peter becomes a pillar of the church. He becomes the leader of the disciples, so to speak. Uh, Jesus calls him out and gives him some unique responsibilities. And I'm not talking about a Roman Catholic kind of sense, where you have the Pope and he has become the head of all the... That's not where... I mean, you don't see anything about for all time, now and forever, there will be some successor in your line, and there will be bishops and stuff like that. That's not what it says. But Peter's given a really unique position, but there's something that... Uh, is interesting. There's a ton of de- debate on who Peter is. There's a ton of debate on what the rock is. We're not going to talk about that. I want to look at the posture. And Jesus says, I will, this is not possibility, this is absolute, I will, I'm going to, nothing will stop me. If God is going to do something, it's going to happen. I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades, time out, Hades is uh, basically a, a Greek concept for the underworld. It kind of becomes this almost synonym of hell. Some translations will tell you hell. Some of them will just put in Hades. Uh, but basically it became the place of the dead. And oftentimes it became associated with the place of dead where evil men and women are tormented. Uh, and Hades is a real elusive concept. Just getting your mind around what first century Greeks, uh, what first century Hebrews understood to me. Now the good thing is we know what Jesus meant. Because uh, Jesus talks about hell a lot. 
Uh, and Jesus is very, very adamant about speaking about uh, satanic warfare, the powers of darkness, hell, different things like that that most churches, again, are afraid to talk about. And uh, if the church wants to preach what Jesus preached on, we're going to talk about money a whole lot, we're going to talk about hell a whole lot. Uh, so, the two topics that most churches don't love. But he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Whose gates are they? Hades. And Hades, if you're, if you're in Hades and you have a gate, uh, why do you put gates up around a city? Keep out or keep to keep people out. So what does this assume about the posture of the church? Is the church just sitting there on its rear saying, oh, I'm just hoping that Hades doesn't overtake me. What is the church doing in this passage? Think military. No. We're attacking Hades. We're storming the Hades. Uh, we say, we're putting the smack down on Hades. Uh, we're going to come in and we're going to uh, destroy it. Uh, you go to a city, you don't, you don't go attack a city and its gates and use words like overpower and I will build my church. Uh, this is warfare mentality. And what I want to do is I want to challenge each and every one of you. And I want to I ask you about the posture of your lives. I want you to take a step back and take an honest assessment as you look at our church. What is the posture of our church? And I think one of the biggest sins of, of any church in this world, uh, the biggest frustrations that I have in ministry, no matter who I'm working with, people from our church or other churches, the biggest, I think, reason that the church has become impotent is because we're defensive primarily. Uh, the church is not primarily a defensive entity. Uh, it is primarily an offensive entity, which I think is just terribly important. And so the purpose of Jesus' church in Matthew 16 is... Offensive. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Go therefore and wait for disciples to come to you. And then when they do come to you, ask them if they want to be taught about the living God. Yeah, no, it's not at all like that. You go. And what did Jesus always do? He took groups of people and he sent them out. You go, you go, you go. You go, you go, you go. The gates of Hades will not overpower you. My church is going to be established. And at the end of the, of the Great Commission, who's going to be with us forever? Jesus. By the Spirit of God, He sends His Spirit to comfort us, to energize us, to protect us. Uh, and His Spirit is the basis that we have for going offensively into the world. Uh, churches, and they, when they think about evangelism, evangelism becomes very defensive. If you notice the, the word apologetics, uh, apologetics is a really, really, we have different ologies. This is kind of the uh, ology of, of defending the faith. Uh, the Greek word is apology and it means defense. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that it doesn't mean defense like I'm defending myself. Uh, it really means an attack. I mean, if, when you get down to the core of what people are doing with the gospel, we're not just waiting for people and saying, well, you, you should, you know, how do I say this? You know, you have to prove to me that God is real. Well, God's real because you can see it in the sky, you can see it in this, you can see it in that. Those are all legitimate, but you know what? We use this little uh, term in debate, and it's called the burden of proof. Uh, the burden of proof is not on you to defend God's existence. The burden of proof is on them. When someone comes to me and says, yeah, prove to me God exists, and I'll look at him and her and say, prove to me God doesn't exist. Oh my gosh, you're going against the grain of all civilization, 98% of Americans and people in this world, uh, you're going against the grain of everything common sense and logic tells us, you prove it. Uh, go read Stephen Hawkins and find a great argument in his. I mean, fine, go there, but you prove to me that God doesn't exist. The burden of proof is not on me to defend God. The burden of proof uh, is on them. My burden is to offensively take the gospel, not offensively where you take people off, but you offensively <laughs> take the gospel to them. And the gospel in Romans 1.16, great, great, great passage. And I'll just give you my little, little translation here. The gospel is God's power to save people. The gospel is the means by which God awakens heart. You can apologize all you want for Christianity. Uh, I can just tell you this, that your apologies are going to accomplish little to nothing unless the gospel is what awakens their hearts and minds to know and love God. And when we even think about apologetics, again, our apologetics are just defensive. Oh, I feel like I have to be prepared to give everybody an excuse for I'm a Christian. No way. Uh, even if they make fun of you and kill you, uh, you don't have to make an apology to them. You make an offense to them. You present the gospel to them because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, should you be prepared in apologetics? Absolutely. Uh, at the least, it is terribly encouraging for us to know that you know your faith is faith, but it also makes sense. It's not stupid. Uh, it really does make sense. In fact, 
little things, and again, I'm not going to use this to defend the existence of God, the uncaused cause. Well, that makes sense. You know, is that going to save somebody? No, but as you step back and look at your faith, it's not just silly. It is rational. It is reasonable. But guess what? Only the gospel will penetrate someone's heart and awaken their minds to love that truth. You can even convince people that God exists, but you can't make people love God. So as you even think about apologetics, I want you to think about the offensive nature of it. Uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and what does this imply about the status of our interaction with with the, the darkness of this world? That it's a, what kind of match? It's a battle. It's a wrestling match. This is not an easy thing. This is not a passive thing where we're just sitting around and Satan's prowling around like a lion just seeking to devour people who are hiding in caves. Uh, and just trying to avoid him at all costs. It's not the posture. Yes, he's wrestling. Yes, he's fighting. Yes, he's pursuing. But greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. Uh, you have all the means and necessary uh, things by the Spirit of God to be offensive. And I just think of, of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7 and 8. And Stephen uh, is bold for the Lord. And he's giving a defense to the, to the Pharisees who are unbelieving and unregenerate. And he basically says, you guys have killed the prophets. Is there anything you haven't killed? And they plug their ears and storm him and start stoning him. And he looks up and says, Here I come, Lord. I'm ready. You know, even in the face of real, real tough circumstances, he didn't make an apology. Was Stephen's posture defensive? No. It was offensive. you got to repent because there's one truth. I'm a part of the pillar and support of that truth. I will proclaim it. That's my job. It's what Jesus did. I'm taking this mission and I'm going. Uh, now, we got to keep going. Again, I'm going to get caught up in all this. Secondary posture, and I think these are great. When you read Ephesians 6 and you get to the armor of God, uh, hugely the armor of God is defensive. I think this is a really cool story because Paul is a prison epistle, a uh, prison letter, and Paul's in prison. He's chained next to a guard. He's actually chained to a physical guard. And as you read the uh, Ephesians 6 armor of God, uh, you're going to find it's almost like he's looking at a guard and he's just writing everything he's wearing. Uh, uh, and he's just talking about, it's called the penalty, the whole uh, armor that the, that the guard would wear. And you get this idea, and basically a lot of the stuff that, that they put on themselves are for defensive purposes. And I'm not saying don't be defensive. What I'm saying, though, is when that becomes your primary posture, you become impotent and ineffective. And I don't think that's what God wants. And this is where churches just become churches, sitting on there at the thing, you know, in the, in the road at 601 West Parlette Road or wherever they're at, and they just kind of sit there and they're just kind of stagnant and they're not thinking about how do we go. And my mission in our youth ministry is to create offensive Christians. My mission is to create offensive evangelism where our students are going out. My mission is to create offensive discipleship where we proactively go about these things. Do we do it perfectly? No. Will any church in the world do it perfectly? No. But it's something that undergirds everything we do. And if you hear me teach back there for more than five minutes, I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God, getting off your butt, serving God, uh, running after things, obeying uh, actively, because that is just so essential to be part of the church, the offensive pillar and support of truth. Which is really cool. What a great privilege. And it's us. Like, if the elders just do it, but we don't follow well, that's not very effective. If you have 300 people in a church who are just sitting on the rears and six guys who are trying to go for the offensive and no one's following them, that's not going to happen. We're going to lose. Uh, be sober-minded. Be watchful. You ever say the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. True, but you're not in a cave. Uh, that's very important. Question is, Ponder, what is the primary posture of your prayer life? Most of us, uh, again, I'm preaching in December on prayer specifically because of this issue. Um, Because most of our prayers are focused on us, our temporary physical circumstances, which when you look at almost every prayer in Scripture, they're about the kingdom of God, the work of God, or people's sanctification. Almost every single one of them. Uh, Our prayer lives are primarily defensive. May we have a great day. I learned so much by by listening to young people pray. And all their prayers are defensive, and, and for the most part, they become very... How it says, uh, if we're in a youth group here and, and Jim prays something, he'll pray something like, Lord, thank you for this day. Pray that you bless us food. Uh, may we have a good uh, lesson tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. And Don will pray. And Don will say, Lord, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. And then we'll go off and they'll just kind of repeat each other the whole way around uh, because they don't really know how to pray. And I think a lot of times we do this. We just throw out words that we hear someone else say and they don't really mean a lot. Uh, we're just kind of saying things randomly. Uh, and really what I would put out to you guys is the prayer, your prayer lives should be, I think, primarily offensive. 
Pray that, that our church would be able to move into the community and overtake things. Pray that the gates of Hades would not, would not uh, be able to withstand the amount of energy by the Spirit of God that we're putting forth into taking the gospel forward. Now, you can say, Michael, you're speaking in extremes, you're speaking in hyperbole, oh, it sounds good, and it'll last one day. And I'm telling you right now that it is not an extreme. And one day, we're going to have to get on board uh, as individuals, as the Church of God globally, and I think our, our elders are doing, a, are doing a great job of trying to mobilize us in this direction. But we as individuals, we need to follow and we need to get on board with what God's doing. And I think it hugely starts with your prayer life. I say pray by faith, pray for big things, uh, ask God to do really profound things, and then back it up with your actions. Uh, we'll give you an example. Uh, the spot. We pray for big things. Don't know what's going to happen. It can be very frustrating at times. And every time we go into the spot, we just expect, because we're pessimists sometimes, no one's going to come. You know, and we never had less than 80 kids come to it. We were able to have over 600 people at the Casting Pearls concert. Blew our minds, and I'm like, maybe we should pray intensively a little more often. You know, and any troubles that we've ever had in the spot are huge because there's a lack of prayer. I can get right down to it and say, there's a bunch of guys or girls or me who are not on board with what God's doing, who've forgotten the purpose, vision, vision, and mission of God on this earth. And we're just sitting back passively expecting other people to do our job. Uh, and I would just say to you, if we had 250 or 300 people in our church who whipped offensively, who got off their rears and stood up for Christ, who prayed offensive, hopeful, faithful prayers, I promise you, you would see radical, radical, radical adjustments in the way this church has to do things. It will mean change because every time God, uh, any time a group of 250 people start doing really, really great things for God, change is inevitable. Uh, but that's a, that's something I'm willing to pick, honestly. Uh, you can, I'll sacrifice most things if I know I'm on par with God, if I'm moving in God's direction, and I'm actually taking His posture, uh, primarily offensive, secondary defensive. Uh, we talked about evangelism. What is your primary posture of confrontation of sin, typically passive or non-existent? Um, why do we confront sin? You get into our youth ministry. Uh, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but we don't put up with sin. We just don't. And when we know it, we talk to him about it. Every kid in our youth group has had a conversation with myself or Brian where we've said, here's what's going on. Here's what God says. What's going on? And you know what? Every one of them are going to leave our youth ministry. They're going to go to some other church in their life uh, and they're going to understand that it is okay for people to confront me in sin. We start off in every student leadership meeting we have, and I tell them at the beginning of the year, you guys stink, you're going to fail. Uh, deal with it. Let's learn from these things and move on. That's life. And quite honestly, as, and this is, you know, take it for what you will, examine your own hearts. Uh, as people get older, they isolate themselves from people. Ask yourself this question. Who in your life is free to confront you and tell you you're sinning? Uh, if the answer is nobody, most of couples can't do with each other. And let alone as they get older, they have kids, their kids go away. Uh, and this is just, you know, youth have their struggles, uh, older people have their struggles, sorry, more mature people have their struggles, uh, and the struggles, you isolate yourself. Uh, and really, what, the reason it happens is because we are not active about our friendships with people, keeping Christ at the center of them, and inviting people into our lives. So I've got some friends in my life, man, Brad Stern is just one of them. Brad will put the smack down on me in a second. Brad and I spent an hour yesterday talking, and the first thing Brad said is, Mike, you're not going to like what I have to say, but I know you're going to receive it. And I was like... Okay, bring it on. And he did. And I received a lot because he has that freedom with me. And when Brad messes up, I call Brad up and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're silly. Uh, And I've got a group of friends like this that I just keep around me all the time because I want not to be confronted. Life is way too short. Uh, I tell people, you're going to die very soon. Life is but a a blink. You know, it's but a It's just so quick. And you're given a unique position in this place at this time to do something. Don't let your pride and your walls isolate you. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were something. Uh, what is your primary posture in your personal wrestling match against the rulers, against the, the powers, against the world forces, the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places? Direct quote. I didn't just pull up a bunch of stuff together. Uh, I think when we get that this isn't hyperbole, but it's reality, we'll be equipped. Uh, at least at the beginning. And uh, that's a very important aspect of this thing. So we're going to keep going. Leadership in the church. There are tons of metaphors that talk about different facets of the church. Vine, shepherd. I think there's one that is the dominant theme as you look at the church's commands and missions and it is that of an army. I do not like the imagery of the church as a team. A team is playing games here and there. It's not a constant battle. It's just competition. 
Uh, I don't think that really takes into consideration the eternal implications and ramifications of life. Period. Uh, and so as we look at the leadership in the church, we're going to talk about God's generals. And the office of elder, and if you guys open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read some of the qualifications. But you're going to notice, it depends on what translation you're reading, uh, sometimes they're called elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds, bishops, uh, even sometimes the same translation, like I think the New American Standard Version will waver between overseers and elders. And uh, basically, we're referring to one office, uh, it's not like there is a bishop and there's a bunch of elders underneath them. We're talking about one office. There's always, usually, always, excuse me, plural, uh, more than one. That's why in our church we call it the plurality of elders, which means more than one. Because one man on his own should not be carrying the full load of the church. There's accountability, there's interdependence that is really essential in the leadership. Um, so as you see these words, I want you just to think in your mind, synonym. And originally, the Hebrew, Zakane, it meant the bearded one. Uh, there's a, another ology for you. It's etymology. And etymology is the study of a word and how it evolves. I think it's really interesting how you can see from the Old Testament how a word is used, and its meaning changes. The word is the same, but the, the way it's used changes, like the word gay. Uh, I had a friend whose mom was named Gay, and I always laughed because I thought, oh, what a funny name. Uh, now the name is the word still the same word but it's really shifted in meaning and there's a huge lesson for Bible study here for example the word justification does not always mean the same thing Uh, the word salvation does not always mean the same thing and we really have to look at how a word is used what it means in its context and so we're going to see how words can get a little slippery but it meant a bearded one uh, or an older member of the family and the term is used frequently in the Bible for those who are older in years however the term elder most frequently refers to the ruling head of the family or clan uh, and Jesus said these were predominantly the aristocratic leaders of the Jewish families basically the patrician families of the families that ruled Israel uh, they served in local village councils alongside the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the great council of the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul was a Jew. Paul grew up in this context. And as Paul is really laying the foundation for the church, what is the institute? Elders. Uh, go figure, because every institution that God has established has had older men or some kind of men in some way, shape, or form. Mature men is the best way to say it, because uh, some of these men were in their 20s. We'll look at the, you know, the disciples were teenagers. Go figure that one out. Uh, and so... Age gets to be a relative thing, but um, what you get is this idea of mature men called elders, and Israel now into the church, and it's a really, really great thing that God has given the church to protect it, to lead it, to care for it, to push it on the offensive. Um, so leadership in the church, we talk about the elders' qualifications. First Timothy 3, and I wish we could go through each word and just study this, and it's really a great passage, but I would just say this to the men, uh, men, this is the standard of faith uh, given that we can't be as perfect as Jesus is. Uh, I look at this and this has been a passage probably for the last three or four months. I spent all summer meditating on First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 about what it means to be a mature, respected man uh, in the church. And so this is, man, I'm just, we're going to go through this. I'm going to try everything in my power not to go into it. So will somebody read First uh, Timothy 3, 1 to 7 for me? Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well, and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Go forward two books to Titus. Uh, And somebody read for me Titus... Uh, one, five to nine. For this cause, let thy thee increase, that thou shalt accept in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, 
having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, or a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, uh, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. High, high standard, tall <laughs> order, for sure. Go back to First Timothy 3 for a second. And, uh, something I think is very important, and this is one of the things I want to highlight, uh, is that it starts off in uh, 3.1, he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And one of the first things that we look for in any kind of overseer, any kind of elder position, is that they want it. Uh, it is not a sin to want that. When God puts a call in your life, He adjusts your desires for that, and you want to do it. The last thing you want is an elder on your council that does not want it, or that does not meet the qualifications. Now, here's a question. Why would God make His qualifications for church leadership so stringent? What do you guys think? He only wants the best. Only wants the best. Absolutely. What else? He wants Christ-like men. Absolutely. Christ-like men, yeah. He even says things like husband of one wife implication is probably not divorced. And uh, he says things like uh, there's actually a lot of debate in terms of how this is understood. But in Titus he says, and his children literally says must be believers. Uh, there's a little bit of debate. I think that's the most clear understanding of it. But some people say and his children must be faithful. Uh, and my thought is, let's say it was believers. Why would God want the children of elders to be believers? So that. You know, it shows that they practice what they preach at home. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's one part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. It also eliminates a certain amount of concern for the salvation of the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What else? Also, um, an unbelieving child or unbelieving um, um, child could, could cause um, damage to a, to a leader's reputation. Absolutely, yeah. God is so concerned. I mean, if there is one thing God is intense about when it comes to ecclesiology and church polity, is another word, or church leadership, uh, it is that his leaders must be above reproach. Uh, we are the pillar and support of truth in this world, and he does not want one single accusation to be brought up against one of his chosen men to be this situation. Uh, it may seem extreme, uh, and I would say, like for example, whenever I'm trying to understand these passages and what exactly Paul means by these, uh, a question, we had a study this summer with some of our younger people, and it was over eldership, and we stuck in this point for about two hours. And the question was, why would God make it a prerequisite for someone's kid to be a believer? Uh, that seems so ludicrous and extreme. And my thought is, well, God is pretty extreme in his expectations, okay? And it's not a matter of, like, you know, you're not as holy as he is, but it's a matter of reproach. It's a matter of he doesn't want somebody standing up front having somebody, non-Christian otherwise, being able to bring an accusation against him because when the elders are discredited, who is discredited? The church. And then who else? Christ. Christ, yeah. And if God is going to be... I'll use the word anal about one thing. It's going to be his leaders. He's going to want people who nobody can bring a charge against them. Integrity, utmost important. I mean, it is it is primary. And so my question back to these guys was, well, they said to me, well, that's just so not fair. And I'm thinking, life's not fair. Deal with that. And then Brian and I, we have to deal with the situation. Like I'm in one of these weird, unique positions of staff guy and one day you know I'm on a track to pursue eldership in one way shape or form in the future and so let's say I'm in this position and we have three kids who are complete pagans does that mean I have to leave the ministry and as I stand right now I don't see any other way I can really get around this I don't see how I can take an elder leadership position in the church when my children are not believers is that extreme yeah is Paul extreme yeah is God absolutely committed to the high integrity of the men who are going to leave the church Absolutely. Yeah. And it shows God's hand in the eldership because Yes. Confirmation. Right, because if you have kids and you're not preaching the gospel at home, how are they not going to hear they're not going to hear the word. So you know. 
So you're not living it at home. But if you're preaching the word at home, God says, bless it. Yep, totally. He's going to, you know, because it's up to God who believes and who doesn't. Yep. Yeah. But if they don't hear the word, then God doesn't. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, right. But then you hear it in the secular. <clears throat> I mean, just with uh, our presidency. Yeah. And how, you know, extremely can get with, you know, the kids and people say, well, that's just this personal life. And I mean, they're like, that's his personal life. <laughs> and what is, is this, the, the line of integrity is up there. And they yeah. want a president that can not have all these little issues yep. that come crawling out. Absolutely. And it's only because the United States as a whole is look they look at the president, they say yep. that's the United States. Absolutely. And it's the same yep. concept. Not as perfect because God wants right, yeah. perfect. I mean, so why if we want a good president, why wouldn't God want the best? Yep. It takes integrity to lead, hands down. If you don't have it, you shouldn't be leading. Perfection? No. Integrity? Yes, even the Romans got this. If you look in Scripture for centurions, just do a word study. Every centurion in Scripture has a couple things in common. They are considered upright, they're considered God-fearing in one way, shape, or form, and they are noble men who are respected. Every time. The centurions, no Roman would put somebody over a hundred or a thousand men who is not uh, with upright character and integrity. Because even the pagan Romans understood that in order to lead, you must lead with integrity. Uh, in fact, some of the greatest conversations that Jesus... Uh, or you find an axe are with centurions and you just learn a lot from them. Really interesting how you see how Romans set up their structure, how much more the church of God. Now there's flexibility in this, I gotta be honest, this is an issue of debate. My rule in understanding qualifications is always go for the extreme to be safe. Mm-hmm. And because God is extreme in these things. Uh, I think a church can function in an environment fine and I I don't know if it's necessarily the best, but they can do it, and I think still be within the guidelines of scripture if one of their pastors does not have a believing child of the church. Every church has to really come to grips with that. Prayerfully by the Spirit of God, seek out truth on that. Uh, to where I land, our church, I have no, I don't think that's been an issue yet. All of our pastors have had believing kids that are, are here right now, so um, and I hope it never does. I hope that it is never even a concern that has to ever come up, and by the grace of God, it won't. So we'll keep going. Authority? Yes. Uh, on verse 2, we're talking about the bishop, uh, mm-hmm. the husband of one wife. Yep. That's also a, uh, an answer to where you go to a church where they have a woman pastor. Yep, absolutely. Uh, this is where, you know, and where you stand at us, uh, you know, I love you, but the scriptures are clear. Uh, and we're going to talk about authority in just a little bit as we get to, to membership. This is not Paul saying women are not equal to men in personhood or value. This has nothing to do with that. This is a matter of protection and God-ordained authority and function. Uh, and again, you can not like it all you want, and we can just sit down and open scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. And you know what the basis for every time Paul speaks of roles is? Creation before the fall. Because this is the way you were made. Uh, that's a tough one. I understand that it's not I understand that it doesn't jive with our culture. But guess what? Our culture is not the pillar in support of the truth. We are. Uh, and we don't back down and be defensive because maybe they're going to think we're cuckoo. That's just not really our biggest priority. Now, do we want to respect them? Like, yes, that's not saying just go be punks. What I'm saying, though, is uh, have respect, but understand that there is an offensive side of us that we should be taking. Um, again, these are all different roles accomplished by the same people. Lay and staff. Uh, again, staff is such a funky word because I'm a staff pastor. Uh, in our church, even though that uh, technically Don and Tim and Joe are staff, they have equal authority and responsibility uh, as Dave, Pat, and Mark do. Uh, and they're equal. They all sit in their meetings. You know, the staff guys don't kind of lord over them all. I'm paid for this or I'm at the seminary. Uh, it's really not even relevant. Uh, what really matters is that God has called each of these men to this position, and they equally share the job and function. Uh, and uh, so there's no distinction between lay and staff. Staff basically is paid, lay means you guys are all lay, and none of you are paid by the church. Um, so a lay elder is somebody who is not paid by the church, but still has this capacity. Um, even though a lot of times our lay elders put tons and tons, they are committed to this church, which is one of the reasons why... Uh, why there's so much confidence in their position here because they have uh, exercised integrity, diligence, perseverance, and these qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, they're responsible for the shepherding work, and this is the primary metaphor for the, for the elders, it's shepherd. Uh, leading, protecting, feeding, caring. Uh, this is the imagery, again, of a first century uh, shepherd, uh, and he's 
uh, taking care of his sheep and there are always wolves and different animals trying to kill his sheep and the sheep are always running astray because people are sheep too and we just do silly things uh, which is why uh, part of being a member is submitting to the authority of the elders uh, sometimes the elders have to put their arm around you and steer you because by nature we are sheep and we just run that's what we do we're silly 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 people and anybody who says you're better than that uh, give it some time because you will end up doing silly things that you need to be confronted on hopefully you have people in your life who can fulfill that function there. Uh, but protecting feeding caring I don't want to labor too much on some of these but uh, rebuke and removal only by two or three primary witnesses, and that's very important. <coughs> in number and term, uh, long story short, uh, there is no number and term. It's just the Holy Spirit guides and directs, and if one of the elders falls into a position where he does not meet the character qualifications, that's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, you're done. Uh, pull back. Uh, the elders' primary responsibilities are prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, Act 6 becomes the prototype for elders and deacons going forward. Um, actually, what time is it before we go? I had my alarm set. It's going to scare us all in about a minute. Uh, now at this time while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic that the Greek Jews the Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews and they're not an easy situation even the early church is conflict uh, against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food uh, widows that's a whole different story but so the twelve this is the apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples or the followers and said it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So the apostles are sitting there, and they're saying, all right, look, we can serve these tables, but there are so many more valuable things we could be doing with our time. Uh, God has gifted us in unique ways. So, for example, like, uh, I'm a teacher. If you don't have me teach, I'm going to go crazy. And you know what? I'm going to like feel like I'm, I'm not going to be performing my full capacity and function because that's how the Spirit has been working in me and gifted me. But, like, these guys are saying, should I neglect the word of God to serve tables? There are plenty of people who can do this. Why should I put aside my primary calling for secondary things? Is it not important? No, it's very important to the point, so much so to the point where they inaugurate deacons. Uh, and this is where the office of deacon becomes a really primary ministry. But therefore, brethren, verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And this is talking about deacons now. So if you are a deacon or going to be a deacon or thinking about it, uh, there's some high qualifications for you as well. Uh, full of the spirit of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task and this is where they talk about uh, the, the apostles uh, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word now here's a little thing for you if you have an elder who is not devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word they shouldn't be there uh, these are the primary tasks of an elder um, elders need to be men of prayer men of prayer men of prayer prayer is one of the things I've been thinking about a lot as I'm pursuing just thinking about what does this mean for me is I want to whether or not I ever be an elder I want to be qualified I want to have high integrity uh, and I want to be able to be a man of prayer and I'm trying to think how does this play so how, what does this mean to be devoted for my life to be devoted to ministry uh, to the sorry to the ministry of the word and to prayer and so, step back. You should feel free to ask your elders anytime. What does your prayer life look like? Explain it. It should be primary. It should be terribly important. It should really determine most of the decisions and directions they take. Um, an elder council that does not pray is a council that is filled with unqualified elders. Uh, very simple. And so, uh, you have a responsibility to make sure that your elders are men of the word and are men of prayer. Uh, and if they're not, you need to intervene if the council's not going to. Now, thankfully, I know each of the elders very well. They're men of prayer, and they're men of the word. Again, are they perfect? No, but they're growing in these areas. They're strong in these areas. They're men of integrity. They're men that, as I've gotten to know, they're interpersonalized, uh, for the most part, in a very deep way. Uh, I have absolute confidence in it, and I'm excited about it. And they get, they're men of prayer. There are times when I'll walk in on some of the pastor's office, and I'm like, where are they? They're not here. Oh, they're in the corner praying, and they're trying to be discreet about it. But it's kind of just cool being in this environment times and seeing how they go about these things and you don't want to just you know stand out in the hall and lay on your face and pray so everybody can see you you know you want to be humble about it but um, if you're out here long enough you'll see that the men here uh, do love God and the men here do submit to these things which I think is great confidence for you and we get to move forward and participate in that and just because this is for the elders I don't want you to step back and think uh, the standard of your devotion to who God has made you to be should be any less. Some of you have gifts of 
hospitality. Some of you have gifts of compassion and mercy. Some of you have gifts of giving. Some of you have gifts. I mean, you, you name your gift. Whatever God has made you to function as, uh, you do that. Uh, you spend your energy. If you don't know what it is, figure it out. Prayerfully, to ask the elders to come help you figure out what your spiritual gift is, how you're supposed to function in this body to maximize your effectiveness and to maximize really the spirits working in you. First uh, Corinthians says, to each person is given the manifestation of the spirit. The manifestation is something where the spirit makes himself known. What do you do? What is the thing that God has called you to that the spirit makes himself known through? And do that. Uh, we're going to keep going here. Yeah? That's, I, uh, when we were in position there we didn't have a like I said before Don wasn't here I don't want to say we didn't have a qualified pastor that's getting back to the to know the elders I mean that's mm-hmm. there was never any question at the time when Jim left or you know, anybody stood up there and said what do we do now or they, yeah. they, they, they held that position right absolutely there, yeah. and they stood tall and they, 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 they never yielded in that at all absolutely and one of them in my mind could have stepped up there and you know entered that office and, yep get that on forward. absolutely and, uh, which when you go through trial, that's when the real character comes out. That's right. just, you know, that was never trial. And you said, well, you know, I don't know what to do now. Yep. Somebody want to help. Or, you know, just yeah, if there's ever a, probably a time that proved this to be true, it was that time. Uh, prayer and the ministry of the Word, and when they're focused on that, the Spirit manifests Himself through them and their calling and their gifts and makes himself known and does what he should be doing. And it's a, it's a really quality thing. So you guys get to think about is our church is, again, always constantly trying to develop spiritual gifts. Uh, there's a there's this point of ownership that each individual needs to take. And that's how the church becomes offensive when we understand who God has made us to be, how he's gifted us, and then we engage in that ministry and move forward. So, exhortation for you guys. Appointment, and this is a great one. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. And so, there's a, a story back in the Old Testament where David uh, has an opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, and Saul's not a good man. And David's response was, how could I do that to the Lord's anointed? And the point is very simple. Who God has put in authority, you do not subvert. Who God puts on top, you don't dishonor. Who God puts up here, you respect. Uh, And we'll even take that a little bit farther. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do not think that they're just men with power who get to do whatever they want. They stand before each other, they stand before you, and they will stand before God and give an accounting unlike yours. Uh, because the responsibility is greater. James talks about, let those who teach, uh, basically don't teach unless you have to, because you're going to be judged very strictly. Uh, hugely a direction towards the elders and towards the teachers of the church. Uh, but what is our response? And I'll tell you how this has played itself out for me. Uh, you can ponder this. I'm not saying this is absolutely what you have to do, but um, I believe all life is worship, and there's no aspect of my life that cannot be, sorry, blocking my but cannot be glorifying to God. And so... I've made a decision that if the elders say anything to me or ask me to do anything that is not sin, I'll submit to it. Uh, because just like we tell our students, uh, you do not submit, honor, or love God any more than you submit or honor or love your parents. Um, I will tell any wife, and again, you can take your stance on submission in the home and whatnot, but you do not love, submit, or respect God any more than you love, submit, or respect your husband. I will tell husbands, you do not love God any more than you love, submit, and respect to the elders of the church. Uh, and I would say to Jesus as well if you're saying Jesus you don't love your father any more than you're willing to love submit and respect him uh, and the challenge comes sometimes and I thankfully our church is not in this situation I pray it never does what happens when you have somebody who uh, is hard to submit to but they're still in that position at that time and I would just say to you guys until God takes them down uh, you need to be faithful uh, I would obey unless they cause you to sin. I would submit, and I would even add a word here, and no offense to the author of Hebrews, but uh, honor. When we when it says honor your parents, okay, authority is always to be honored, whether it's government, I mean secular government, we're called to submit to them as well. I mean, submission is just a, a part of life. Uh, but when it says honor your parents, honor is not passive. Honor is not I'll obey. Honor is I'm putting you on a pedestal and I'm glorifying you. You see the difference? Uh, and so for our students, we tell them, 
It's not just obeying your parents, it's honoring your parents. And try getting a high school teenager to keep that into his mind and heart and to love it. Very difficult. Everybody in here knows that. I watch it happen all the time in a negative way. And there is every once in a while when the student honors their parents, it's like, it's just so rewarding. You know, you're like, that's the way God meant it to be. It's not meant to be passive, begrudging submission. It's meant to be faithful, love, honoring. So... Do you guys think about that if they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account? That's a very important line. Do not think that how they act in private or in public will not be judged by the judge who knows the secrets of every man's heart. Very important. And I have to remind myself of this. I'm given shepherding authority by our elders over junior high, high school, college, and career. That's a massive group of people, and I'm going to have to be very accountable to that. Um, and... Every, like I have to really check out my personal life and make sure that I'm above reproach. And this is a passage I think any elder should constantly come back to, or any church leader or any ministry head should come back to, and just remind yourself that you will absolutely give an account. We're going to go through this as a fast one. Uh, servants or deacons, they basically share a lot of the same authority um, as the elders, but very different authority. Uh, deacons are leaders, but in a very different sense. We'll just say that. There's a little bit of debate about women. Uh, for example, this is... Uh, a little challenging thing. Uh, Romans 16.1 says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant. The word Phoebe is servant. You see the word diakonos all over scripture. The question is, when does it refer to a woman, deacon, or does it, or does it refer to just servants? For example, um, in Titus, I believe it's in Titus. Well, actually, it's in First Timothy 3. If you go down to verse 11, it's in the middle of deacon qualifications. And then it says in verse 11, Women must likewise be dignified. The word gune goes woman or what? You just don't know. I mean, is it talking about women? Women deacons? Or is it talking about wives or deacons? Uh, it's just unclear. It's just the way it goes. Our church is taking a stance where women are not deacons. I think that's probably the most faithful to the context and to the whole of Scripture. Uh, but there is a debate. So you'll go to some churches where women deacons are there. And I don't, it's definitely not as clear because elders, elders and men, period, done, that's it. Uh, deacons, again, I would give a little flexibility depending on where you go. For example, this is one of those non-essentials where I think God will bless either way you go. Uh, although, you got to make a decision because you're either going to have them or you're not. And again, I think scripture is clear, but... Confusion is the confusion. Confusion. I know. Uh, so leaders, you know, even if, even if something's not clear, uh, the leaders will generally take a stance on it just for the sake of sanity and peace and unity. So we can't be on defensive but not just bickering over little details. Qualifications. Uh, long story short, they're high. They're just like elders. There's very few differences between the two. And the elders are given broad authority of the whole church, and the deacons are given delegated authority. Uh, this is a really, 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 really important aspect to get, because the deacons only have what the, what the elders will give to them. And this is what you see in Acts 6. You see this story where, again, the widows aren't being fed. And so the elders appoint the deacons. Uh, so, so the elders can focus on their prayer and the ministry of the word and leading the flock of God that, that, that they've been given. And so really, uh, man, free your elders up to preach and free your elders up to pray. And deacons, serve as much as you can. And members, pray your heart out and do whatever you can to be on board with them and to support them and honor them. So, do you have a question? No. Okay, sorry. Uh, my brother and sister work for a church, and their pastor gets in front of their staff uh, every week, and he asks them if they're connected to the vine. And he goes over and has each of them talk about their personal uh, spiritual walk. And I would just say this to you as an encouragement, and as, as a pastor, this is something that must, 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 must be a daily thing for you. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides or lives in me, or your home is, uh, and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When your leadership applies itself from the vine, you will watch as their prayer and the ministry of the word become less and less powerful, they become less and less prominent, they become less and less important for them. Uh, they will get distracted easily, they'll start making decisions that aren't wise. Make sure your leadership is plugged into the vine. Um, our students have an open door for me to come to me and talk to me about sin, and they use it. I do stupid things. I say things I shouldn't. Sometimes I have step boundaries that I shouldn't step. I'll bring something up that I shouldn't, or I'll make a mistake and say something. I'm not perfect. And they will come to me, and they will lay me on the ground and say, with all respect, you know, uh, this happened, and it hurt my feelings. And, um, and any humble leadership should be able to, willing to receive some kind of correction 
in exhortation. As long as it's from a good spirit, a respectful spirit, just like you'd want your kids to approach you in respect, think uh, of it like that. I know that's tough for a lot of people because we want to be, you know, we want to be adults, we're responsible. We, you know, I don't have to submit like a child, but I would just say to you, when you understand your goal is submission and honor, it really changes the way things work. Um, quite a bit. So we're going to keep going. I'm almost done and we're going to get out of here. I apologize. I don't want to keep you forever. Uh, membership called God Soldiers. Uh, a crash. This is when a group of rhinoceros uh, get going and they are really funny creatures because they're huge, heavy. They go about 30 miles an hour but they can only see about 30 feet in front of them. Uh, so you can just imagine this crash. And so there's, there's a church that they're like and they, they have their membership class which is called the Crash Chorus. And uh, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. And uh, basically what they do is they say, you know what? We're living by faith. We're moving the way God is moving us. I don't know what is 30 feet in front of us. I kind of get a little bit of direction here. But we're like a big herd of heavy rhinoceros making an impact. And everywhere we go, you're going to see where we went. And so this is uh, herd mentality. And so I want you to think of yourself as soldiers in a herd moving forward. And uh, hopefully we are not destructive in a bad way, but we are destroying the gates of Hades. Um, membership is not a club. It's not a tax, tax exemption status. It's not a team where you can sit on the sidelines. Uh, this is where most churches go wrong. This is where most churches become ineffective. You can have great elders, but a horrible standard laid for their members. And I'll just say to you guys, if this is what it is, I mean, make it. I mean, take advantage of the fact that they're country. Take advantage of any tax exemption you get by giving. That's just wisdom. Uh, but this is not primarily what it's about. It's about being a part of a herd that is moving forward, being part of an army that is on the offensive. Um, absolutely necessary. Um, I mean, I really want to talk about this, but we're going uh, to... Autonomy. Our kids, man, if you... We, this is about every other week comes up. Autonomy, basically, is auto is... It basically means, like, if you hit yourself, it's to yourself. Namas is law. And this is a word that basically we use that people are autonomous, they're independent, they're a lot of themselves, they do what they want, when they want, how they want. This is the culture's ethos. This is 21st century... Uh, American consumerism, autonomy. I mean, it is so frustrating. Our kids are autonomous. Uh, they don't want anybody telling them what to do. I decide what's right and good and everything else. And tell them you, you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing, I'm going to use that. I like that. Um, anti namas, anti nomism, no law people, these are just like liberals, everything goes, you know, there are no rules, there's no nothing. Uh, neo namas, which is new laws, these are the legalists, churches are filled with neonomian people who just love to make laws, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, your godliness is dependent on extra biblical rules, uh, not a good thing. Uh, make essential what the Bible makes essential and everything else and leave relative. And this is where weaker brothers and sisters come into the play because, uh, let's just be honest, we love our rules because they're safe and they just give us something to measure it by. And here's the reality. God loves you. He'll never love you any less than He does right now. Obey Him. And you're not ever bad with God. You're just disobedient. You are justified and made perfect with God and right with God and nothing's going to change that. Uh, period. Not your laws. Not your rules. You're not, he doesn't like you more because you read your Bible and your seven minutes a day. Uh, neo-knowingism will kill you. Uh, it's legalism. Um, so we're called to submission. And in theology, they call this uh, economy because the economy is the way something works. You know, they work together. And, and so the economy of the Trinity is one of submission. It's one of sacrifice. It's one of service. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to both the Son and the Father. Uh, if you don't like submission, well, it's in the Godhead. Uh, why would it be any less of us? You know, as we get to marriage... Uh, the economy of marriage, uh, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head, the leader of every man, and the man is the leader, head of every woman, and God is the leader of Christ. It's biblical through and through, uh, and that's just the way it goes. Uh, and these are the three S's really quick. Let's go through them. Uh, submission, it's everywhere. Service, it's everywhere. And sacrifice. Uh, this is how I want us to redefine membership. Membership is the three S's. It is us coming into a body where we die and we give our time and we give our lives away for the kingdom as part of an army. I'll read this to you. We'll leave with this because this is a great little letter. Here's what not to do. Very simple. This is the letter that the church I used to work for. This is uh, the elders made a decision that was right and the flock, particularly Bob, did not agree. And this is the letter he made public to everybody. And this is kind of the absolute opposite of what I would hope anybody would do. Dear Mickey, Mickey was a man I lived with. Uh, he was a great guy. I loved God. Awesome. Awesome. Artist. 
Judas knowingly and deliberately did a similar deed to our Lord and Master Jesus for merely a few shekels of silver. At least you are, quote, struggling with this as you say. Do as Jesus commanded and please do it quickly. That's a reference to Judas. Uh, we're mostly disgusted and dismayed to hear any more about it from either you or any of the EBC Presbyterian folks, the elders. Please tell all the spiritual whores hiding out in the EBC hierarchy what I think of their evil shenanigans, too. Even the pagans and secular business folks have a better and more decent code of ethics and a sense of business morality about doing what's right than they do. The queer Roman Catholic Church clergy have done nothing when compared to the EPC Presbyterian folks. It is a hideous abomination and a black mark in the EPC denomination and to God. Nothing was mentioned to us, either orally or in writing about this EPC property takeover. When the, this is condescending, by the way, when the most reverend Art Hunt, who is the pastor, and the professional fundraising company that was re- recommended to be hiring by him and the rest of you on the steering committee or the elder board to build the building, who aggressively promoted our donating many thousands of dollars to the CBC building fund. This is nothing short of fraud or worse than misrepresentation at best. We individually and collectively want our money back, plus all the equity buildup that accrued since the CBC building fundraising drive on the grounds of misrepresentation. I'm ashamed to have my name associated with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, excommunicating and begging and dear quickly, formerly of Ehoz, in Christ. <laughs> Because that's Bob for you. Uh, there are ways to interact with elders. There are ways to be members. This is not one of them. There are ways to honor God and to honor the authority structure that He's put there. This is not one of them. So my, I just leave you with this. My exhortation for you guys is: uh, live offensively, pray offensively, share the gospel offensively, serve in your giftings. Understand that service, sacrifice, and submission are just a lot of the Christian life. Jesus modeled it. Paul lived it. Peter lived it. The apostles lived it. Our elders are living it. May we follow and live it too and be people who do that. And I think God will absolutely do wonderful things in our body if we can really embody this and incarnate uh, the example that Christ gave us. So let's pray and go to church. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for uh, authority. We thank you that we're not left to our own and that we're not autonomous. Lord, we are accountable and interdependent and need each other desperately. Uh, Lord, I just lift up uh, our elders to you. We pray for them. We pray that you continue to give them uh, integrity. You pray, continue to give them uh, wisdom and discernment. And God, that they would continue to be men who abide in you, are plugged into the vine, uh, who are in a crash uh, with the body of Christ here, Lord, for your kingdom and taking the offensive. Uh, I pray for each of the deacons too, Lord, that they would be able to submit to the elders and serve as unto the Lord. And that they're an example in their service which free the elders up to focus on their primary duties. And Lord, may each of us be and live who you have made and gifted us to be. May we be spirit-filled believers whose ministries are manifest in your spirit and we can actually see the fruit of that. So God, we give this all to you and we do it for your glory so that we can be in alive with your purpose, vision, and mission. In Jesus' name, amen.